Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. One, two, three, cuatro. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we'll be talking with Robert Finley, whose album Sharecropper Son was one we both loved in 2021. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, let's review some new music. That's a track called Gasoline from the new Weekend album called Dawn FM, the fifth studio album from Abel Tesfe, born and raised in Toronto, began his recording career in 2009. I remember this vividly. He was putting out all this stuff kind of anonymously on YouTube, and then he, mm-hmm. then he released those three EPs, one on top of another, House of Balloons, Thursday, and Echoes of Silence. A new sound for R&B, uh, very dark, sinister-sounding uh, records. Uh, acclaimed. Nobody knew who this guy was. Didn't no. give him any interviews. No. Or so. how to pronounce Weekend. <laughs> W-E-E-K-N-D. Correct. Uh, but uh, he has since gone on to a huge amount of fame. Released uh, four studio albums since then. Kissland in 2013. Beauty Behind the Madness 2015. Starboy in 2016. And a huge record called After Hours in 2020. Uh, preceding Dawn FM, four number one albums, 15 top 10 singles, blinding lights from the last album, uh, spent four weeks atop the Billboard Hot 100, and also broke the record for most weeks in the Hot 100's top 10. I mean, no other single was more successful in the history of the Billboard Top 100. And uh, the album did pretty well, too. Number one, biggest streaming week for an R&B album ever was snubbed for the 2021 Grammy nominations. Usually they get these kind of things right. They get the sort of the pop stratosphere correctly. It was so big it would be impossible to ignore, except for the Grammys who never gets uh, anything right. It was just nuts. So Buddy's back with a new record beginning the new year. Um, Dawn FM is the name of the record. We're going to review it in a second. It's called Less Than Zero from The Weeknd on Sound Opinions. That is less than zero from Dawn FM, the new album by The Weeknd, a.k.a. Abel Tesfe. You know, Greg, the word was that uh, The Weeknd was working throughout 2020, a dark year for all of us. After After Hours, uh, another album uh, that he eventually shelved because he thought it would be too dark. Hmm. <laughs> what yeah. is what is that saying? Because Abel Tesfaye has given us some very, very dark music. Um, 
this album, in comparison to his catalog, though not everything, Dawn FM is is a ray of sunshine in mm. many ways. You know, the conceit is uh, this is a radio show or a radio station that is coming at you with kind of the best of 70s disco influences and 80s house music uh, as processed by this brilliant, thoroughly modern-day producer of R&B and soul music. You know, it is not a, a repudiation in any way of his earlier darker themes. He is still incredibly uh, self-reflective, uh, and he doesn't always like what he sees in the mirror. Mm-hmm. I've been so cold to the ones who love me, baby. I look back now, and I realize... The last few months I've been working on me, baby. There's so much trauma in my life. I've been so cold to the ones who love me, baby. I look back now and I realize. However, like many musicians, we've said this a dozen times over the last year, year and a half. Um, you know, when you're cooped up at home in dark and troubling times, sometimes you just want to dance mm-hmm. around the living room. <laughs> and there is more of that, I think, than we've ever heard uh, from the weekend before. Mm-hmm. Or is it just me? I mean, it was striking me as a sunnier overall album uh, than he's given us and a really sophisticated one. I mean, he grows more and more into that realm of uh, uh, just, you know, like, this guy is Prince. This guy is a new generation's Prince. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I think the guy's made an incredible record. Um, you know, he, it, it is sort of a reset for him. You're correct in saying that the dark stuff has sort of been, and not necessarily shoved to the past. He, he definitely addresses it right up top. But, it, you know, he's fashioning this in sort of a three-part journey. He's addressing this this person that he is, that he he no longer likes that guy. Yeah. And and he's looking at it from an older, wiser perspective. You know, that album cover, uh, for people who still care about album covers, creeps me out more than just about anything Abel Tesfaye has given us. Yeah. I'm going, this is an older Abel Tesfaye, and he's like, you know, this old... Well, that computer aging... Gray-haired, yeah. you know, uh, R&B singer, you know, of the past. Well, he looks like this guy who lives in a cave and comes he, out only to shout at like people. Like you see these guys on street corners or something yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a rough... He's had a rough go here. But I think that's also to tell us he's kind of a little older and wiser. He's looking back and saying, okay, I needed to clean this up. I got to yeah. start liking myself again. I got to start treating other people with respect. And, and, and the journey of that, you know, this whole idea of being stuck in the middle of something and finding, looking towards the light, that's kind of the big theme of the radio station slash concept album that he's made here. But the music, you know, none of that would matter if the music wasn't any good. And it is spectacularly good. Um, you, you know, you were mentioning that he was there. There's a lot of old school references here. There's there's a lot of Euro disco. I hear yeah. a lot of Michael Jackson influence, early oh, Michael yeah, Jackson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quincy Jones uh, does one of those little interludes on the record. Uh, a dreaded, a dreaded moment. I, I, I'm just going to start a I hate interludes yeah, campaign. Yeah, I know. I mean, they do sort of break it up a little bit, but it, he does give it some context. He's talking about, you know, you, you, you can't outgrow your past. And, and in, a, in a way, The weekend is trying to do that. But, I, I, you know, when I think of a track like uh, How Do I Make You Love Me, uh, segueing into Take My Breath, that five and a half minutes yeah. of just euphoric music... Euphoric. I never thought I'd be using that word with the weekend, with but the here weekend. it is. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and out of time, that 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 is a, just a spectacular track. That is going to be a huge, huge hit, 
And it's going to be a huge hit that a lot of other people who don't normally listen to the weekend's music are going to love because it's just so well-crafted. Um, so I, I think it's a triumph for him. I think it's the best album he's ever made. Oh yeah, you gotta recognize that sound, Greg. <laughs> it is Neil Young and Crazy Horse playing in a barn on an album appropriately titled Barn. The, uh, well, you know, truth in advertising from Neil. The count is 41 uh, solo albums from Neil Young. Uh, 14 of those with Crazy Horse, his favorite backing band. Neil Young really needs no introduction at age 76 as of last November. Um, I have considered uh, the last decade or so since his near brush with death with a brain aneurysm, uh, you know, a gift. I'm so glad mm -hmm. Neil is still with us. Does he occasionally give us uh, cheesy music? Yes. Does he occasionally give us brilliant music? Yes. Sometimes track by track, they, they vary. Mm. Uh, but it is always good news for any Neil Young fan that he is reunited with Crazy Horse, albeit this is a different Crazy Horse. Uh, Frank Pancho San Pedro, his longtime second guitarist in the horse, has officially retired. Uh, Nils Lofgren is taking his place. Nils has been, uh, you know, on and off into the Neil uh, uh, cast of characters for years, so mm -hmm. that's not bad. And you have the uh, longtime core of Crazy Horse, the rhythm section of Ralph Molina and Billy Talbot, drums and bass respectively. Both at the ripe young age of 78, mm. <laughs> kicking things off on Barn. Um, Neil needs no further introduction. Let's play a track and give our thoughts on what he is giving us. This is a song called Human Race by Neil Young and Crazy Horse from Barn. Who's gonna tell the children of destiny that we didn't try? To save the world for them The human race is on We're all lined up at the starting gun The crowd is rising to its feet That is Human Race from the new Neil Young album, Barn. Uh, you made the point that Nils Lofgren is in the band Frank Pancho San Pedro, a uh, longtime uh, Crazy Horse member, uh, retired. It's a different sound with Nils in the band. Uh, with San yeah. Pedro, they were really punching out those rockers. Uh, Nils gives it more of a textural kind of approach. Um, you know, he's playing a bunch of instruments on this record. There's that piano and accordion sort of uh, giving some different flavors to the record. It's more low-key than you might expect from a, from a Neil crazy and Crazy yeah. Horse record. But that doesn't make it a bad record. In fact, I think it's probably, for my ears, the best thing he's done in about a decade. I, I, I really like this record. Uh, it, it's not, he's not breaking a ton of ground. In fact, you think about this whole obsession 
with the past. Neil has had that from the very earliest days when he was yeah. a kid writing Sugar Mountain, looking yeah. back fondly on the years that have lied. You know, yeah. I'm 19 now. I'm losing my youth. I'm got. It's gone. You can't and be 20 on Sugar that. Mountain. Right. He was 19 at the time. I right. know. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Journey to the Past early yeah. on in his yeah. career. He's yeah. already talking about on this track, when I was a little boy, I dragged my wagon all through the town. I'm heading west. <laughs> well, he's been dragging his past all through the town uh, yeah. ever since. I mean, that's such a big part of him but the past as it informs the future and on this one i i wanted to play human race because that to me is the key uh, track on the record who's going to tell the kids that we didn't try to save the world for them you know basically that's the sentiment of that song yeah he's saying you know we screwed up and we're owning our past and we didn't do a very good job of it you know we're, we're trying to build this future for for the world so that it can survive so that our children and grandchildren can survive in it. And we're and, blowing And it. we screwed yeah. up. The judgment is soon coming down. I can't quite remember what it was that I knew. You know, he sings that song right out on, on that track, They Might Be Lost. Yeah. That's a classic Neil uh, trope. He's out on the porch, mm-hmm. smoking a joint, <laughs> yeah. reminiscing about the sky and the planet and, yeah. you know, himself in that planet. Coming down the highway, just made the turn. Called to let me know She's asking me again And the smoke that I burn Keeps taking me to the old days Now, you know, you ain't kidding, Greg. I mean, Neil has been a green hippie his entire life. You know, look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 2000s, and still today. Um... He is a hippie, and he has never apologized uh, for being one. Uh, that idea of a utopia being accessible. I'm older now, but I'm still dreaming. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that encouraging in these in these times of uh, prevailing pessimism. Neil still believes that uh, that people can make a difference. That we can save not only the planet. Maybe we can save this country Mm -hmm. that he uh, loves and hates, Uh, which brings us to (laughs) Connecticut. All right. Famously, Neil is from Canada. Uh, Famously, he has spent the vast majority of his 76 years as an American, Mm -hmm. a great observer of America, sometimes uh, surprising us, you know, taking on George Bush's points, a thousand points of light, Mm -hmm. right? But also urging us to consider that even Richard Nixon has got soul. You know, um, he really is a great observer of the United States. And in this song, he is wondering what happened to this country that he loves, that he adopted, that he spent his life in. Why are people at each other's throats uh, on the cusp of, of a civil war to the point where they can't even come together to save the aforementioned planet <laughs> for the aforementioned grandchildren? I mean, is that a great song or is it a Dumb song. It's like The weekend. I don't know whether it, this is you brilliant know, it's, or stupid. It's, it's kind of a little bit of both. Neil is like that, you know? Yes. He, and, and the thing about Neil is he doesn't edit himself a lot. Um, you know, Ramshackle is Neil. Neil is Ramshackle. I mean, it's yes. just going to be, you're going to get, you know, and there's going to be people who don't get it, never, never will, and don't want to. Yeah. And I can't blame them. But at the same time, there's a sort of a homespun uh, veracity to everything he does. Like there, there seem to be no false moves in his world. It's like everything he he's doing in that moment, he sincerely 
believes in it. Especially in a barn, especially playing in that <laughs> yeah. barn with Crazy Horse. I will depart from your view about the, the grunge missing, uh, only to the extent that, you know, in my opinion, after Farmer John, the cover of that great 60s garage stomp song from Ragged Glory, Crazy Horse never had to do that again. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, they've perfected no, right. it. You know, the fuzz is there. I can live with Nils Lofgren. I am happy, really just, just gleeful that Ralph Molina and Billy Talbot still have that groove. I mean, they lock into that Cortez the Killer groove, mm-hmm. and you can just ride. You can ride it for 10 minutes, for 20 <laughs> minutes. You can ride it for this whole album. And uh, to me, Crazy Horse, uh, everybody talks about the guitars, but it's always been about the groove. Long may they run. There you go. Welcome back, as he says. That's what we think of the uh, latest from the weekend and Neil Young, and now we want to hear from you. Let us know in our Facebook group or in our Patreon community, or leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, so we can play it on the show. Plus, we'll revisit our conversation with Peter Bogdanovich about his 2007 Tom Petty documentary. That's up next on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott, and he's Jim DeRogatis. That's a little bit of the song Don't Play from the new Turnstile album, Glow On. Quartet formed in uh, 2010 out of Baltimore's hardcore scene. Uh, Put out a couple of EPs, a full-length debut in 2015. Got signed to a major label deal with Roadrunner uh, and put out the Time and Space album in 2018. Now we have a new Turnstile album. Uh, They've been making a lot of buzz on that hardcore scene, but they are expanding out of it uh, slowly but surely. Mike Elizondo is the producer on this one. That's kind of a a departure from hardcore norm. Elizondo's, uh, you know, his credits include 50 Cents into Club. Mm -hmm. Eminem's The Real Slim Shady. He co-wrote those songs. He's co-produced a lot of records uh, that have made the pop charts. And he's done bands everywhere from Mastodon to Avenged Sevenfold. Uh, you know, from the harder-edged part of the scene, now we have his production on Turnstile's Glow On. Here's a track from it called Blackout from Turnstile on Sound Opinions. That is Blackout from Turnstile. The album is Glow On. Uh, Greg, you turned me on to these fellows as a buried treasure, I believe. And uh, the album is uh, is really a fantastic listen. Uh, sucked me in, kept me playing. It was on repeat for a couple of days around the house. I kept thinking, this is Pelican meat. <laughs> battles. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Um, Pelican, a great Chicago-based uh, 
hardcore, uh, metalcore, whatever you want to call that harder edged, uh, harder hitting sound these days. Uh, but with the, you know, synthesizer sonics and inventions, the soundscape, the weird, uh, uh, soundtrack kind of mentality, the battles brought to its inventive, uh, records, which we loved. Um, you know, there is a lot of, uh, of just, uh, sonic coloration in this mix as well mm -hmm. as some real headbanging worthy, uh, aggression. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know it, 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 you feel like you're driving a steamroller, <laughs> but you're in a Looney Tunes cartoon. <laughs> I love that. I really love that. Yeah, I mean, the, this is a band that's uh, pithy, and I guess that's where they get the hardcore credentials from. 14 of the 15 tracks on the new album are uh, clocking at under three minutes. Um, but, you know, to call them a hardcore band, you know, it's like effed up. Came out of the hardcore scene, but they're really not a hardcore band anymore. They There's are so, so much more. Much yeah. more than that. You know, the band out of, a great band out of Canada that we've reviewed several times on the show. Uh, Turnstile sort of reminds me of that ethos. Um, as you mentioned, kind of a... A, a cut-up style that uh, incorporates all sorts of musical influences. Uh, and Elizondo's bringing that out, and they are down with this idea. They don't want yes. to be, you know, remain in the hardcore ghetto. They want this expansive sound while retaining that energy that has always been at the heart of their best music. Well, you gave Elizondo's, uh, uh, you know, rap sheet, and I think, I think Mastodon is what connected probably with Turnstile. You know, who knows? I mean, he, he's done some great work across, I believe, you know, I remember him in connection with a Fiona Apple record years yeah. ago, yeah, yeah, yeah. doing a great job on that. You know, but here's, you know, they got this Latin funk breakdown in the middle of that track called Mystery, and, mm -hmm. and uh, New Heart Design sounds like a synth pop track. You know, it, it doesn't sound like, oh, this is supposed to be a, a guitar-based uh, hardcore band. No, they, they're doing all this other stuff. Uh, you know, those otherworldly vocal effects on Underwater Boy. The way those hand claps come in in uh, Don't Play. Um, you know, a ballad with Dev Hines of Blood Orange, you know. Yep. They're really expanding the palette here, and, you know, and, and the songs really work. I mean, musically, this, this, this record is, is, is incredibly rich. Um, you know, lyrically, I'm not looking for profundity from these guys. They don't give me much, but at the same time, exuberance seems to be the overriding theme. I want to live large is what they're saying, you know? Mm -hmm. And if it makes you feel alive, well, then I'm happy to provide, they sing on Blackout. My favorite lyric on the album, Jim? Yeah. I need more boom, boom, boom. Yeah. <laughs> and they deliver <laughs> yeah, that. They, they do, do deliver it. So, Greg, you, you did play uh, Turnstile last week as part of your mixtape, and the album came out in August, and I was like, I don't know, what is Cot running out of things to talk about? But I was 
glad you said this album deserves a full no, review because it, I've been living it with it for a week and loving it. Yeah, the, the you know Turnstiles had a long history. Uh, I don't think they've ever made a, uh, a record quite as accomplished as at this one. It's impressive that the band is showing up on a lot of year-end lists as well. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's important to acknowledge this record as one of the better releases of of the last of the last year. If you haven't heard them, you deserve to discover them. So that's what we thought about Turnstile. You can leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, and give us your thoughts. Now we turn to a conversation that had aired back in 2008. That's right, Jim. We were lucky enough to have chatted with the late director Peter Bogdanovich. He died on January 6th at the age of 82 from complications related to Parkinson's disease. And uh, now you may be thinking, what does he have to do with music? Uh, of course, Bogdanovich and his partner, Polly Platt, made three timeless films in the 70s, including The Last Picture Show. But it was in 2007 when Bogdanovich directed the Tom Petty documentary, Running Down a Dream, that we interviewed him for Sound Opinions. It's kind of a shame. Uh, many of the obituaries that ran left that off, his filmography. So let's us dive into that conversation. <laughs> That's Running Down a Dream from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, the title song, as it were, from a four-hour documentary that has been airing on the Sundance channel in recent months and is now out on DVD, a four-hour documentary about the career and life of Tom Petty and his band, the Heartbreakers, directed by no slouch in the directing department, Peter Bogdanovich, Oscar-winning director who uh, broke through in the early 70s with a movie called The Last Picture Show, one of the most acclaimed uh, Hollywood movies ever. Uh, he also directed The Mask with Cher in it in the mid-'80s. Got a long history in Hollywood, got a long history as a documentarian and a journalist. Well, and people probably know him recently from appearing on The Sopranos. Absolutely. As the shrinks shrink. <laughs> We've got uh, Peter Bogdanovich on the phone from his hotel room in New York City. Welcome to Sound Opinions, Peter. Thank you. Peter, you have done a four-hour documentary on Tom Petty, Running Down a Dream, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It's airing on the Sundance Channel. It is out in DVD. You are a man who picks big subjects. You have done major work on people like Orson Welles. You've written a book about Orson Welles. You've written a book and done a documentary on John Ford. Tom Petty, does he fit into that pantheon of, of great men, great artists in American history? Obviously, he does for you. Yeah, well, that was what interested me about him. I think he's a very talented, gifted brilliant uh, American artist and I approached the documentary with that point of view. Yeah, when did, when did you become a fan? I mean, what was it about Petty that interested I, I, you? I, I, I didn't become a fan until I did this movie. Really? I'd heard a couple of songs but I didn't know much about him, which is one of the reasons that interested me because, I mean, I knew he was good and they Tom liked my movies and wanted to meet me and was interested in having me do this. Mm-hmm. So we met in November of '05, and um, we got we struck a we, we we hit it off very well immediately, and that was the beginning of it. You know, I just th- thought he was so American in a, in the best possible sense. It was really a a native American artist with with a sense of Americana that was very acute. I thought it's it's interesting, Peter, because I think what we what you see with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And the more you watch your uh, documentary, you, you realize this. This band has had a 30-year run. 
And, and it's not like they're the Rolling Stones, where it's this multi-million dollar mega corporation. I mean, the, the Heartbreakers, are, I suppose, are a corporation in their own right. But what this is really is a story of a working American rock and roll band and, and the rarity of being able to hang together. It's, it's almost like peeling back the curtain and how does a band work and how does it stay together for that length of time? I mean, is that how, how you started seeing the story? Because that's the way I see your, your movie in a way. Yes, it is. It's very, it's very much the story. You know, I determined right away, right from the first meeting, that Tom, I'd like Tom to tell the story. I found him very charismatic in a, in a non-show dog kind of way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sort of a, reminded me of, not, not specifically, but he reminded me of somebody like Gary Cooper, a somewhat laconic, laid back, mm. the epitome of cool, actually, mm-hmm. and very and quintessentially American, Southern American, too. As you know, the South is a font of extraordinary writers, from Mark Twain and um, Thomas Wolfe and William Faulkner and and um, Truman Capote. I mean, Tennessee Williams is an amazing. All the most of the great American writers somehow come from the South, and I think there's something about the South that just sets it apart. And um, Tom is very much a representative of that. So. I decided early on that I wanted we weren't going to have a narrator. We'd have Tom tell the story and, of course, the band and the people around him. So we interviewed about 28 people. Yeah, you do, you do a very thorough job of uh, journalism, and, and uh, Peter, you are a, a great journalist. You've done some amazing work as a journalist even before you were a, a director. Thank you. Uh, and it shows in this, in this documentary. I think the fact that I was asking the questions it was very important to me that I do the interviews. And that I asked the questions, even though in many cases the producer, uh, George Draculius, who's a record producer, and who had the idea to put us together, Tom and me, mm-hmm. George would pet, would slip me questions as we, as we were doing the interview. When it got to certain something that there was an interesting tangent or something, a nuance that I wasn't aware of, he would pass it to pass me a note. But it was very important to me that the interviewees were talking to me when it was happening mm-hmm. because uh, I bring a certain baggage into the room and uh, I felt that they'd be more honest and more straightforward with me than they would with somebody else. No, it's true. I thought that was a failing in Scorsese's documentary with Dylan is that he never sat down and interviewed Dylan himself. Yeah. Not to diss another director. <laughs> <laughs> but Peter, it, you know, it's a four-hour film and it sucks you right through. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like it's that long, both both on Sundance and on, on DVD. Well, that's a big compliment. I'm glad. That was what we were trying to do. At a certain point in, in the process, we realized that it was going to be long. I mean, I knew it was going to be, it couldn't be short because we're dealing with 30 years. And in fact, you, you mentioned the Scorsese-Dylan picture and Marty took three hours and 40 minutes to tell six years of Dylan. And mm-hmm. uh, I figured if, that, if that's the case, well, why, why shouldn't we take four hours to tell 30 years of Tom Petty? Well, now, he's really a self-effacing character, uh, Tom Petty. Greg and I have both interviewed him any number of times. He's always most loquacious when he's telling stories about other people. He's always wanting to tell us George Harrison stories, which are very funny. <laughs> but was there a point where he said to you, he started this ball rolling, but was there a point where he said to you, I don't know if I want this much of me up there on that screen. There were certain areas that that took a little pushing to keep them going. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's two uh, kind of key revelations for me about this movie. One was you got into these issues about his upbringing, 
his his relationship with his father specifically yeah. as being fuel for his artistic freedom. There was an extreme rage in me that from time to time would show its head through a lot of my life. Any sort of injustice just outraged me. I just couldn't contain myself. And this comes from from my dad just being so incredibly verbally abusive to me. And uh, he was certainly physically abusive at times. He would uh, give me pretty good beatings most of my life. How did that sort of emerge, that that childhood really shaped him and he played rock and roll, and it, rock and roll really did save this kid's life. Yeah, that's true. Well, I we 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 had glimmers of it for in the interviews with Tom. He he made certain references to his dad and the situation he was in and the difficult childhood, but he didn't get into details. But other people did. His brother told me about it, and his daughter mentioned it. So. I toward the when once I once I felt that Tom really trusted me. I pushed him to tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we because we didn't do all our interviews in one lump. We we did them over a period of months. You know, one other extraordinary scene in the movie I thought was the scene from the early '90s where Petty is in a recording studio. It looks like with Roger McGuinn, one of his heroes, the, yes. the founder of the Birds. And there's a record company guy there trying to get Roger to record a certain song and Petty's looking at the song going what is this crap because sometimes the commercial road you know like thinking that that's the road to take isn't always the road to take sometimes it's doing stuff from your heart and being really honest with people works much better well let's change some lyrics well why don't you just get him a song I'm just curious how you came across that piece of uh, film footage well that was interesting we were interviewing Roger and um Roger brought it up. He says, we've got this, you know, this confrontation that happened and somebody shot it and Roger had a copy of it. Tom didn't have a copy of it, but Roger did. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about it until Roger brought it up. And I thought it was a perfect example of, you know, Tom... Tom's integrity and and the steadfastness in the face of authority. (laughs) He was going to stand, he wasn't going to back down from his opinion that it was a lousy song, that this guy shouldn't be singing it. It's one of the highlights of the movie. In fact, in a couple of screenings I've been with audiences where we had, you know, 400 people or something, there were a lot of considerable cheering in that section. (laughs) And yeah, and so on. Particularly... Particularly the screening we had in L.A. where it was a lot of industry people. Well, Petty's a guy who put his money where his mouth is, fought with his record company to charge consumers less. We've been talking to Peter Bogdanovich, director of Running Down a Dream, the extraordinary new Tom Petty film. Peter, I think we're remiss if we let you go. As a fellow rock fan, as a film great on your own, if we didn't ask you, what's your favorite rock movie of all time? <laughs> well, I... I, I, I I don't know. I, I, I looked at a lot of the documentaries that have been made, and not, I didn't want to make one like them. What I wanted to do was an image, a vision that I had right after Tom and I talked, right as I was beginning to work on it. I said I wanted a movie where we had a lot of people talking, but we didn't sit on their faces for very long. I didn't want a lot of talking heads cross-cutting. I wanted to have a lot of images I wanted the talking heads not to be talking heads so much as narrators. I mm. wanted the story to, I wanted it to be more of a movie mm-hmm. where you could follow the story visually. So I had this vision of what the movie should be like 
I wish I could say it was easy to achieve that goal. It was a really twisting, turning road to get to where we got, but it did turn out the way I imagined it would. But I, uh, there were many times along the year and a half, almost two years that we spent on it, where I thought, I don't know how we're going to get to this place. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. it was it was it was hard, you know. Well, it did. It absolutely works. Thank you, Peter, for uh, sharing some time with us. I also have to say, as a guy who grew up in Jersey City and Hoboken, man, The Sopranos, you were great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. You're very kind. I thought you could really hear uh, Bogdanovich's uh, fandom for Petty when we were talking to him. Well, he, you know, he discovered the artist through making the documentary. And I, I think, you know, we, connecting his appreciation for Petty's music, you know, he's always been sort of enamored with these American heroic type figures, these classic yeah. American, um, you know, icons. And, uh, you know, for him, Petty fit into that mold. When we return, a conversation with the blues artist Robert Finley. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. You can stand me up and we are back. From growing up on a farm, the son of a sharecropper, to warming the hearts of many TV viewers on America's Got Talent, Robert Finley has come out with one of Greg's favorite albums of 2021. Ain't that right, Greg? Well, Jim, absolutely. I was immediately struck by this guy's voice. I mean, it exudes, you know, power and sincerity and emotional attachment to the subject matter. And the way he's singing these lyrics, you know, he wrote these songs about what it was like to grow up as a sharecropper's son. And Dan Arbach said, you know, Robert, tell your story. Yeah. And he told his story in a series of songs, one after the other. Just the honesty blows me away, and the power in that voice really sticks with me. Well, I love the album, too, and uh, it is really an album as autobiography, but Stream of Consciousness mm. has delivered mm. from the back porch over a, a couple of beverages, and that is exactly what it was like to talk to Robert. We talked with Robert about the album and what it was like to uh, sing on America's Got Talent, among other things. So We are honored to welcome Robert Finley to Sound Opinions. Robert, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Well, Robert, you've uh, you've had an incredible life and a, a late bloomer, as they say, in music from a standpoint of the recording studio. But I think it's telling that your new album is called Sharecropper Son. And that takes us right back to the beginning, doesn't it? That's, that's where you grew up, right? Yeah, that's where I grew up at, uh, down in uh, Winsboro, Louisiana. What was that experience like for you working on a, on a farm? Oh, man, I'm telling you, sharecroppers never got their share. That's what they have shown. I always man. got the short end of the stick, man. And like I say in the song, it was hard, but it, it was fair. You've made some, some, some great observations about those years where I saw one interview where you were chatting, if somebody killed a hog, um, they'd share with all the farmers, all, all the sharecroppers. If one person in the neighborhood killed a hog, everybody had, had meat, you know. Uh, now, man, uh, neighbors kill a hog, you never know anything about it. <laughs> that was a use for everything. I mean, the song takes the older people down memory lane, but it's history to the young people because nowadays nobody reads a history book. If you want to know something about the past, 
you asked Syria. Syria, what <laughs> went on in 1929? You know? <laughs> I did a show with Mr. Bobby Rush. Uh, he was doing something for the Boys and Gloves Club. Me and him was talking about the same thing, that growing up in a small town, everybody kind of knew everybody and everybody looked out for everybody. Great place to raise your kids. On one of my albums, my first album called... Uh, Age don't mean a thing. And I tell the story about the young people that it's good to be from a small town and it's great that everybody come together. But at the same time, everybody is in everybody's business. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, in the city, people live in an apartment for months and don't even know the, the person across the hall. Don't know the name of the family because nobody cares. Everybody goes in their house and they shut their door. People don't communicate. I came to this little town, Bernice, over 35 years ago, and I wasn't here a week before everybody in town knew I was here because there was a stranger in town. And uh, and the fact that I played music, I, I played one Saturday at the ballpark because somebody asked me, could I play the guitar? The guitar is always a door opener. So I was riding around with the guitar neck sticking out of the car. And I pulled up to a ball game. And I pulled it out and started singing. And everybody lose interest in the game and left the ball game. <laughs> can't, can't get around my car, you know. How <laughs> they say your gifts open doors for you. If you got a talent, always display it because it, it makes so many more things possible for you. Regardless of what you got, if you don't display it and people don't know you got it, there's no way it's going to sell or nobody's going to be interested in it. So I tell young kids, whatever you can do, make it known. But the more that you do it, the better you become at doing it and the more confident you come at doing whatever, you, whatever you're trying to do. You know, when you've talked about, uh, you know, Sharecropper Son is an autobiographical record about your upbringing, and you've said you actually uh, freestyled large parts of it. You were improvising lyrics at the mic. It was just like talking to you, Robert. You're telling stories, and uh, but in this case, you were singing them for the microphone. Right. The band had came in, and they were warming up, and I was in the front of the studio, and I heard it, and I liked it, the vibes. I was in there bobbing my head to the beat, and Dan said, sing something to it. I didn't have, like, time to write anything, and I had already thought about the sharecropper's son. Every time I passed by a cotton field, it hurt my back. So the thought had come, and I was wanted to write about it. So when they started playing the music and asked me to improvise, I just started to doing that, you know, about my uh, upbringing, about the farm and stuff. It got longer and longer and longer, and then we was having fun. It looked like it wasn't going to ever end, and they wasn't trying to stop, <laughs> and I wasn't trying to stop. And so that's how we came up with the sharecropper's son, the country boy, and, and country child. Because mm -hmm. all three of them was just made up as we were going. It was just one long song. And we didn't want to discard any of it. So we just chopped it down in, into three pieces.
fuzzy we got, the more fun we was having in it. This would be like Isaac Hayes' album, I Stand the Cues, if we had did it, would have took up the whole side of, of, a, <laughs> of a 33 mm -hmm. vinyl, you know, and made it uh, into three different songs. And the only thing they really did was basically change the bass line, but all three songs were actually made up at one time. <laughs> well, when I was on America Got Talent, we finally worked our way up to the live show. And when we got a chance to do the live show, I wanted to show my songwriting skills because this was the biggest opportunity I'd had to do it. And so I called and uh, they agreed that we'd go into Nashville and write this song especially for American Got Talent. And the name of the song was finally starting to see. I've been around the world and it's all the same. We had finished the song and the band had to come in and do their part. So that was just the piano that Bobby was playing that we was writing to. My way of writing is give me a groove and let me freestyle. And Dan's way of writing is write out the lyrics and then we create the music around it. So we were totally opposite in the way we wrote but we decided we'd do it both ways. So we're like, okay, let's do it your way and then let's try it my way. And we found out we both liked it. And besides that, he already had seven Grammys sitting on the shelf. That kind of <laughs> impressed me. He's a accomplished a few things, yeah. Dan Auerbach. <laughs> All right, now, now, Robert, you know, I've read that as a little kid, the first time you saw a performer on TV, you said, I'm gonna be on TV someday. And it only took 55, 60 years for this <laughs> unlikely break of America's Got Talent. I mean, you are not the sort of artist they generally feature, uh, you know, and, and I've heard you ask that question, uh, but I got to ask it again. How the heck do you wind up on America's Got Talent? I didn't do anything to get on America's Got Talent. We never applied for it or anything nor did the record label apply for it. But uh, what happened, one of the young ladies that was the producer on the show uh, heard something on YouTube or something, and she contacted my manager and asked me, would I come on the show? And I was like, uh, <laughs> my, I'm like, thousands of people have auditioning to get on this show, and now they asking me, do I mind coming? And I'm like, why not? What do we got to lose? And me and my daughter was in uh, Caribbean Island, I think, when that happened. We was fin to fly home, and when they called and told us about the show, we decided to just stay on the island because it was cheaper for the show to pay because they was going to fly us from home to Los Angeles at the time. My record label was going to fly us back. The first thing I did on it was get it while you can. I think that was the first show that I did it on. We got a standing ovation from the audience. 
And the only person I was kind of worried about was Simon. When my daughter say Simon is giving you a standing ovation, I was like, are you serious? <laughs> uh, this guy here is, uh, to me, was going to be the biggest problem. And he turned out being my biggest fan. And I was like, oh, wow, uh, we, we need to keep going. He had told me that he wanted to talk with me after the show. And then they found out at the time I was getting into one contract and trying to get out on another. I'm kind of glad we lost off the show because I didn't want to sign for five years. A million dollars sounds like a lot of money, but by the time everybody get their piece of the pie, you know, it, it, it's not that much left. Well, for, for for a guy who has talked about there were years at a stretch where you lived on $25 a week. Right. Getting offered a million dollars. That, that That's a big jump there, Robert. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, you struggle so hard to get independence and you struggle so hard to get freedom. And then you turn around and sell it. It's just like buying a new car. You got to go to work whether you want to or not because you got to pay the note. Everybody's going to know. If you lose that new car, what you're dealing with, you know, everybody's going to know that you're going from a brand new car to back to walking. You've had a long career in music before you were even known. I mean, you started out playing in the church, right? And then the army band and then busking on the street corners. What did you learn from those experiences? Because obviously when you started your career in your 60s, you already had a sound, and it seemed like you were ready to go. You know, it's a long apprenticeship. But what did you learn from each of those experiences prior to starting to record your own music? Now, there was a show called the Ernie Miles Show. That was a gospel show that came on every Sunday morning. Mr. Miles always told me, boy, you should be doing this and you should be doing that. It was so encouraging, you know, until I got to where he would show something of me every Sunday on his show. I would go on a Saturday and do a recording the first Saturday of the month. And all I had to do was sing four songs and he would play one each Sunday for that month. So that was one way a lot of people knew me from the TV show playing gospel. Thank you, Robert, for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, we hope to see you soon. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having us, man. And uh, bye-bye. That wraps up our conversation with Robert Finley. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an interview with one of our favorite artists who made one of the best albums of 2021, Adia yes. Victoria. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed where this week we're airing the entirety of our interview with the late Peter Bogdanovich. Good stuff, Greg. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our intern, Mary Bernthal. Our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 